Do small kids need socialization? Are moms enough for a child to, to develop properly? Have we, have we been lied to about what small children need? Welcome to season two of What Should I Tell My Daughter? It's now called Psychobabble because I want to hit a broader range of cultural trends that contribute to our mental health crisis. Please share it with a friend, like and subscribe. It's really important. I've been really looking forward to today because this is an issue that is, or the issue that is the closest to my heart, namely daycares. And I'm honored to welcome today Erica Komisar. She has written two books, one called Being There, Why Prioritizing uh, Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters, and in 2021, Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling, Raising Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of Anxiety. And she's appeared on CBS, ABC, Fox, and she's a regular contributor for the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. And it's really, she's an incredible voice in this field. Thank you so much for, for, for doing this, connecting from New York City. Hi, Erica. Hi, Hi. Erica. Thank you for having me. So this is, I mean, this is quite an unpopular topic, no matter where you are on the political spectrum. I mean, on the right, this is not something, this is something the pro-life uh, uh, people are, are, are trying to not encourage that we speak up about. So of all the things that you could have written about, you have a private practice, there, there are enough patients out there. Uh, why did you pick this? Well, when you say this, do you mean uh, specifically what very, very young children, what their irreducible needs are or the daycare issue? Yeah. What do you yeah. mean? The, the, the early childhood years and the, yeah, specifically yeah. the daycare issue. Yeah. So, so, I mean, basically, I felt like society was ignoring um, what was the most obvious thing, which is that um, we've moved in a way uh, towards a trend of valuing the um, rights and uh, and needs and desires of adults, mm -hmm. but not really the needs of children. And so I felt like it was time for a reset that we really understand that the mental health crisis that we're seeing in children and adolescents is because we've become a very narcissistic society of valuing adult desires and needs and economic needs over um, the emotional and physical needs of children. So, so children have the irreducible needs that when they don't get those needs met, they, um, they, it often turns into where they often develop some of these mental health disorders, anxiety, depression, ADHD, uh, and worse, personality mm -hmm. disorders. Mm -hmm. um, children require the presence of mothers in the first three years as much as possible fit the physical and emotional presence of mothers or primary attachment figures um, because it, mothers serve a biological function in those first three years not just an emotional function mm -hmm. they help to do things like regulate emotions from moment to moment they help to buffer stress uh, from moment to moment, and they also help children to learn how to interact socially. Uh, so their presence in those first three years is critical to the safety and security um, and the emotional development and the right brain development of children. Mm -hmm. And I think we've basically ignored that because 
of the, you know, the, the push for women to be in the workforce yeah. at such an early stage. Okay. And, yeah. So you did, uh, if I if I've understood that correctly, about 12 years of research for this book or more? The first book that be, being uh, there? Yeah, I, yeah, I would say more. At least 13 years of uh, at least looking at all of the research. I'm not a researcher. I'm a clinician, mm -hmm. but I'm a clinician who is very interested in neuroscience research and epigenetics research and attachment research. So uh, in those 13 years mm -hmm. where I was raising my own children mm -hmm. um, and felt that writing the book that I wanted to write at that point, uh, being mm -hmm. there, would interfere with my, uh, my ability to be there for my children. So what I did is I read lots of research and I started to put together uh, what, what then became being there. Yeah. Interesting. Could you take us through some of that research that's the basis of what mm -hmm. you said in the beginning? Well, I mean, attachment research basically says that uh, if children are not, longitudinal attachment research says that if children are not uh, securely attached after 12 months, um, and that secure attachment requires as much of their primary attachment figure's presence as possible, right? Children are born neurologically fragile. And so that means they require the presence of their primary attachment figure, usually their mother, to make them feel safe and secure mm -hmm. in the world, right? They're not born resilient. They're not born like adults. And most adults are, are, are not resilient today, um, primarily because they weren't resilient when they were children and they weren't emotionally secure when they were children. Mm -hmm. So, But the attachment research tells us that after a year, if a child isn't securely attached, uh, then in 20 years later, they're not securely attached. And that insecure attachment or those attachment disorders lead to things like anxiety, depression, and borderline personality disorder. Right. So we have that research. We also have, I mean, there's a ton of research. I don't know which piece of research you want, but there's, there's. I mean, I would say read being there and you'll see all the research. Mm -hmm. um, you know, another critical piece of research is uh, Michael Meany's research about generational expression that he did research that was critical to the writing of this book, which was, um, which was critical to the writing of the first book, being there, yeah. uh, which is that when mothers lick and groom their young, he did animal research. Okay. When mothers lick and groom their young, they pass down generationally the ability to lick and groom mm -hmm. their young. When mothers don't lick and groom their young, they don't pass that down generationally. But also the mothers who licked and groomed their young, uh, which is the equivalent of physical and emotional presence, basically mothers lick and groom their young in the animal kingdom. And we're, no, we're nothing more than mammals, really. Uh, they lick and groom their young uh, as a way to regulate the, their emotions, as a way to regulate their stress levels. Um, and what his research showed is that the mothers who licked and groomed their young produced more resilient young. Those young were more resilient to stress. Mm -hmm. And so what we know is that if we want our children to become resilient to stress, then we have to be there physically and emotionally to protect them from stress in those first three years as much as possible, to buffer them, mm -hmm. and also to bring their emotions to what we call homeostasis. So, you know, a mother's role, every time a mother soothes the baby in distress, she's she's keeping that baby's emotions from going too high or too low. It's, it's called emotional regulation. And so that's very important for the right brain because we're not supposed to turn on the stress-regulating parts of our brain uh, with great intensity mm -hmm. until after a year. 
And so those are just a couple. Right. I mean, there's so, so much. That, that was I mean, when you said that. neurologically fragile. That's what you mean. That very neurologically fragile. Mm-hmm. So, and I, it's very hard for me as a, as a, as a psychoanalyst, as a social worker, as a clinician, as a mother, for me to see how mothers uh, can deny the emotional and neurological fragility of their children, how they project onto them something that's not there yet. Mm-hmm. It's very hard for me because I see infants for what they are, which is incredibly neurologically fragile and emotionally and physically fragile. But the way that society is structured, um, mothers go into schizoid states where they disconnect from their baby's fragility uh, almost after they're born so they can leave them quickly. Mm. And that's doing a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that we were also we're told that the kids are uh, malleable. They are, uh, you know, it's all no. socially constructed, and they're supposed to be as no. independent. Yeah, exactly. I was just saying these are the just things no. that I hear. <laughs> just no, just no. These are all myths. Listen, these are economic myths. These are myths that are promoted by a society. If you live, where do you live? Now in Zurich. I grew up in, in Norway. I lived in Norway until adulthood. So, Okay. So Norway is one of those countries, it's more socialist, where the idea was we have to get more people into the workforce mm-hmm. because that's what sustains this economic level for us. And so that's an economic paradigm. That's not an, that's not an emotional, neurological paradigm for children. That is, that is an economic paradigm. So if we're talking, and you know, what really bothers me, if I'm going to say, is when economists talk about this topic. Okay, what do they, they say? Don't know, they, don't know what, they don't know what they're talking about from the perspective of children's mental and emotional health. They know what they're talking about from society's economic health. But having said that, I'm not an economist, so I'm not going to pretend to be something I'm not mm-hmm. and give advice about the economy. But I know from America, where I live, that when we produce incredibly emotionally and neurologically fragile children, they grow into dysfunctional, mentally ill adults who then are not functional in the economy long term. So, um, you know, in the long term, in the short term, it's better for the economy to have as many women in the workforce as possible. In the long term, it is not good for the economy to have a bunch of mentally ill children that grow into mentally ill adults yeah. who then have to be cared for by the socialist state. Yeah. And those numbers are really, they're staggering. It's it's unbelievable. Staggering. So I wish economists wouldn't talk about this topic. That's what I wish. <laughs> Let's let's talk a bit about uh, what we're seeing in the clinic. So when I was working and uh, yeah, I quit my job five years ago, and then it really it struck me how how many personality disorders I had in front of me. And I remember I asked my uh, chief at the time; he had forty years of experience. So I said, you know, the books they say that these cluster B disorders, so emotionally unstable, impulsive, borderline. I'm just going to say it like that because here it's we follow ICD-10 and and in the US DSM, where it's cluster B. Uh, but uh, we can say, okay, they're all emotionally unstable. He said they, they seem to be more prevalent than they are in my textbook. I told him, he said, yeah, like they're they're coming more and more. Can you say something about, about that? Did you find anything? So, so, yes. So attachment disorders come in different varieties. 
right? They come in different forms. Uh, secure attachment uh, is the ideal. And then if you're not securely attached uh, because your mother was either physically or emotionally unavailable or both, mm. um, you end up uh, with um, one of a variety of disorders. You either end up with an avoidant attachment disorder, which is uh, looks like this. You, you're, you come home from work or from wherever you've been, uh, and your child turns away from you, looks away, reaches for other people, develops indiscriminate attachment to others, um, well, doesn't want to have anything to do with you. Mm -hmm. uh, that's called an avoidant attachment disorder, which is most likely correlated in the future with depression and the inability to form intimate relationships with others in the future. Avoidant attachment disorder is you come home and your baby clings to you for dear life because history tells them that you're going to keep leaving them and leaving them. Uh, or if you're with them physically, but you're not emotionally available, they cling to you like for life itself. And that's called an ambivalent attachment disorder, which is most correlated with anxiety in the future. But the the most difficult to treat and the one that we're most worried about is the rise in borderline personality disorders as a result of disorganized attachment disorders. Disorganized. So these babies have no mm -hmm. Yeah. These babies have no strategy. So say that avoidant attachment disorder and ambivalent attachment disorder are strategies. They're defensive strategies that children use, not consciously, but unconsciously. They don't get to pick them. They just it comes up in them that they have a strategy to deal with their mother's unavailability, okay, mm -hmm. uh, either because she's not there or because she's distracted, because she's depressed, because she's resentful, because she has anxiety and depression herself. So all of those things would indicate that that baby has to develop a strategy to cope with life, mm -hmm. right? A disorganized attachment disorder, there's no strategy. That's a baby without a strategy. So what they do instead is cycle through strategies. Okay. They'll turn away then they'll cling, then they'll slap their mother, then they'll turn away, then they'll cling, then they'll... So it's like seeking a strategy but not finding one. And those that's correlated most with borderline personality disorders. And we're seeing a lot of borderline personality mm -hmm. disorders in young adults because that's what we see with self-harming behavior, with suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. We're seeing this huge rise of... Um, personality disorders because mm -hmm. they cannot regulate their emotions they're completely they go. can't regulate their emotions they they mm -hmm. can't cope with there's no coping they're sensitive and more sensitive babies and they can't cope with their mother's neglect mm -hmm. and let's call a spade a spade when you have a schizoid response to mothering when you can just shut down which is what it requires to leave a baby in daycare at six weeks or leave a baby at three months you have to shut down your maternal preoccupation. Right. Turn it off like a light switch. When you do that, your baby is all but lost. And so they have to develop a strategy um, to cope with that loss. And some babies develop a strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, and mind you, those strategies don't necessarily hold a whole lifetime. Remember, we say in my field that repression is a wonderful defense if it lasts a lifetime. So. You know, those babies develop defenses. They may last them quite a long time, but they usually don't last a lifetime. So those those children end up requiring therapy at some point for depression, for anxiety. But uh, the most difficult, I think, is is obviously when you develop a borderline 
or, or narcissistic personality disorder. Those are the hardest to treat. Right. So this uh, schizoid mm. way of mothering that you shut off and you go, I think that's made a bit easier about uh, by the the lies that women have been told because they're not they're not doing this out of malice. I think that these and I've talked to a lot of working working moms and they really do believe that they're not enough. And that's also what I heard when I when I when I quit my job and have people are still bothering me about. I have to go back to work very forcefully. They want me to go back to work and. Uh, yeah, uh, and they told me, you know, your 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 child is better off and needs socialization. It needs. Oh dear, so that, that that's that's so disturbing for me. So I work a lot in Sweden. Oh really? I go to Sweden quite, and I work a lot in Sweden. It's not so dissimilar to where you're from, um, in that that is the myth that they tell women to get them into the workforce. So if I need to get you into the workforce, I need to tell as many lies to you as possible to get you to go into the workforce. Mm -hmm. And what they are telling women is just is just pure bullshit. It is absolute myth. Um, children, do they do something called parallel play in the first three years. They do not require the presence of another child in the first three years. They require the presence of their primary attachment figure to provide them with a sense of security so they can develop in a normal developmental line, so they can take risks, so they can explore well within the presence of their mother. So uh, the idea is that when your mother is physically and emotionally present, you can take more risks. You can toddle off and play on the monkey bars in the, in the playground. You can play with a toy that you might not. You can try to walk and run away and hide, but you know she's there to provide you. So if you need to come back and get a snuggle and, and, and be reassured. So, so it is an absolute myth mm -hmm. that children need to be socialized under the age of three. They do not. Mm -hmm. Women do. Mothers need socialization. Mothers need other mothers. We never raise children in isolation. We always raise children in extended family communities. Mothers need other mothers. So if we're talking socialization, it isn't the babies who need socialization. It's, it's the so true, yeah. But, but yeah, mothers don't need to go out to work to be socialized. They just need other mm -hmm. mothers. Yeah. Being active all the time and incorporating that into your everyday life is easier said than done. For me, it really helped when I found Pitch Fitness Center, a premium wellness gym. It's not just your run-of-the-mill fitness center with white walls and vinyl floor smells like a school gym. This place really gives you that hotel spa feeling. And the best thing as a mom is that it has this kids club, which is amazing. My kids really like to go there. We go every day, even on Sundays. It's so good that even when I'm too lazy to work out my kids force me to go anyway and then i go to the wellness area they even have a steam bath a bio sauna a finished sauna and a quiet room where you can lie down i usually fall asleep a little bit and afterwards i feel so pampered and my kids have had the time of their lives so please go and check it out the link is in the description and you can give them a promo code it's what should i tell my daughter and you'll get a discount But what is what is the difference between when we have one of these play dates and the kids are in a daycare? How do, what happens there neurologically? So what ends up happening when children uh, are in daycare is that they, as I said, they have to develop um, strategies, uh, usually 
neurotic or pathological strategies to cope with the loss and the abandonment. So they're not resilient. In fact, you know, I would say to increase parents and particularly mothers' empathy for their children, children are quite fearful. Even the most brave child is still quite fearful in the first three years. In other words, being there in the first three years, what, it, what does it do? It lays down the foundation of, I mean, the whole word security is, is a word that we just think of as a clinical mm -hmm. term, but actually just think about what that word means. It makes them feel that they are internally secure in the world, no matter what their environment is outside, mm -hmm. right? And the only way they develop that is if you're present for them as much as possible in those first three years. So you put them into daycare, and the earlier you put them into daycare, the more fragile they are. Uh, you are basically forcing them to develop pathological defensive coping strategies, which will catch up to them and catch up to you. Because the way I say to parents is this, you're only as happy as your least happy mm -hmm. child. When you raise children that end up developing stress disorders like ADHD, which is not in and of itself a disorder. Mm -hmm. It is a re reaction to a maladaptive reaction to stress. Mm -hmm. It is that you have exposed your child, overexposed your child to stress, and th their stress regulating system has turned on, their mm -hmm. amygdala. The stress regulating system has been turned on too early and now is in a hypervigilant state so it can't shut down. Mm -hmm. So they either develop hyperactivity, they develop early signs of aggression uh, and behavioral disorders. So what the research shows is that children who are put in daycare at too young an age uh, end up developing behavioral issues and early signs of aggression when they get to their school years. Um, and so school years meaning at three. So in America, we say anything under the age of three mm -hmm. is not school. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's daycare. Preschool in America used to be three to five. Mm -hmm. Kindergarten was five to six, and then you started first grade, second grade, right? But anything under the age of three was daycare. Mm -hmm. Now, because of the supply and demand in America, we call uh, 14 months olds being put into, into school. We followed your model, but it's not school, it's daycare. Mm -hmm. Anything under three is daycare. In Norway, yeah. they just bulk everything together. So it's it's until your school age at six, it's all they separate you know, small kids and, and and larger kids. But it's all just your, mm -hmm. it's culturally mandatory from twelve months. I know. And uh, even I if know. the mo mother isn't working, you know, part time, the kids they go to the daycare. But it's very interesting what you say about ADHD because this is also I've been looking for people who would say something about ADHD and they refuse it's also this very inflamed topic and we've had the, I mean in Norway uh, it, the rate has increased by 241% since 2000 and no yeah. one's really sort of asking out their their answer is this uh, no we're, we're just better at diagnosing and um uh, people feel more comfortable coming and saying that they have psychological issues, I mean, which is true, but we wouldn't, this is, this rate is insane. So there are, there is a wonderful organization in Sweden that I will connect you with, um, that I think is doing wonderful work in Sweden to bring attention to 
uh, the things that you're describing in Sweden, mm -hmm. and also is part of a large organization worldwide that has many of the countries in Northern Europe, um, you know, organizations that get together that are trying to educate mothers uh, on this topic, because the idea is, you know, we fight a lot in this world on misinformation mm -hmm. uh, and narratives that are untruthful. And some of those narratives that are untruthful are even uh, promoted by the government, mm -hmm. right? We know that the Swedish government, the Norwegian government, the Danish government, you know, even the American government, you know, the ideas, they promote the ideas that women getting into the workforce earlier is better for society. Now, it is better economically for those families potentially, and maybe for society economically, but it is disastrous to children emotionally and neurologically. And so what you're doing is you're valuing economics over a child's mental health. And that backfires in the long in the run. Long term. And so, yes, I know Norway is very much like Sweden. Mm -hmm. They want as many, they say for our society economically to work, we want as many adults in the workforce as possible, but it backfires because, and it is backfiring now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Another thing that's interesting about the Scandinavian countries is that they they try very much to um, to say that mom and dad, mom and dad's the same, that they're uh, sorry, that they're interchangeable. Gender what are neutral. Exactly. What are you what are your thoughts on that? They, they even now split. I, another another myth. It's another myth. And it's a myth that um, the idea that mothers and fathers are exactly the same is a myth. Mothers and fathers are different based on their hormones and how those hormones affect behavior. Women and men are not the same. Biologically, we have different nurturing behaviors related to a different set of hormones that we produce in great quantities. Women produce something called oxytocin when they're pregnant, when they give birth, when they breastfeed, and when they nurture their child. They produce a lot of oxytocin. Oxytocin is what we call the love hormone. It's a neurotransmitter that basically helps us to bond and attach to our babies and also to tune in. So in mothers, lots of oxytocin makes them very uh, vigilant to distress, makes them very attuned to children's distress in terms of regulating those children's emotions biologically, mm -hmm. right? We know that oxytocin helps us to see when our child is in distress, to soothe them and get them back to homeostasis. Fathers, when they when they care for their children and stay home with their children, they produce some oxytocin. It comes from a different part of the brain, and it makes them more playfully stimulating of babies, more tactile, playful stimulation of babies, more tickling, mm -hmm. more throwing the baby up in the air, more exploration and risk-taking behaviors. Um, that's a different response to the same hormone. Also, fathers produce a hormone called vasopressin in greater quantities than women do. That's what we call the protective aggressive hormone. Mm -hmm. So there was research in, uh, in England done, in the UK done, where mothers and fathers were lying in bed. When the baby cried, the fathers slept through the cries and the mothers woke immediately to the distress of the mm -hmm. babies. The father slept through. And when there was rustling of leaves outside the window, the fathers woke up, but the mothers slept through. Interesting. So that is that so interesting. You? Fathers were attuned to the predatorial 
threats outside, whereas the mother slept that too because they said the father Because I cannot right. have coffee so, with other women without them complaining about their husbands not waking up to right. the baby. Right. That's it. But they're not supposed to wake up. Right. And so what we're trying to do is trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Yeah. And it offends me when the Swedish government tries to split what is a, a decent period of maternity leave into paternity and maternity Ugh. leave equally taken or lost. And it offends me. It also offends me that after 14 months, they force women into the workforce. These are children who've never had a babysitter, yeah. who've been with their mothers full time, who are many of them who are attached. Now these babies are thrown into 10 hours of daycare mm -hmm. and they are traumatized. And that trauma then causes depression, anxiety, behavioral issues, aggression. So, yeah. you know, in a way it's like, giving with one hand yeah. and then taking away with the other. Yes. So we don't give anything in America. We suck the most, <laughs> but you suck too. <laughs> you suck too in Northern Europe because you give with one and hand then, and then traumatize exactly. these children. And you know what happened now last year? Those really interesting statistics, speaking of this, because they took away from the mother maternity leave, the famous one-year maternity leave in Scandinavia, split it so the father has to take all those women has to take and then what happened last year 48 percent of new mothers they took unpaid leave to be with their babies uh, and that's like, it i mean that's but that's what we have to do in america and it's absolutely ridiculous i fight it in america i talk to policymakers mm -hmm. and you know i i say it's a world it's not just in america it's where you are too it is a world that does not like children hmm. We do not like children. We do not respect children's needs. We do not like children or childhood, right? And that's what it's about. We resent the dependency mm. of children. Where do you think that comes from? Governments, governments resent the dependency of children. Mm. Mothers and fathers now resent the dependency of children. That's what I treat. That's what my practice is about. I treat parents who have lost their ability to feel empathy for their children. And they want so badly to connect with their children, but something has been cut in them. Something has been like a chip in their brain has been removed and they're trying to get it back. Mm. And the truth is it's, it hasn't been removed. It's still there. Mm. It needs to be re-enlivened. But the idea that we basically have lost our, we resent children, we resent childhood, we resent the dependency of childhood, and we've become a world that's very narcissistically adult-focused. Huh. Do you have any idea where those original uh, myths yeah. came from, the socialization, all these things that we still believe? It's, it's, it's economic. It is purely economic. Mm. It started that way. Now it's become more damaging. Than that. Mm. But at some point it was purely economic. It was, uh, those myths were promoted by in, in Sweden and in Norway and Denmark, not so much in Finland, but now in Finland too. I mean, in Finland, they used to have the best policies. Now it's Hungary that has the best policies. Finland mm. used to have pretty decent policies of, um, allowing for choice family choice mm -hmm. so families could choose they still do but there there's more pressure in finland now to use daycare 
But Finland used to say, you have a choice. You can either take the $15,000 and use it about that, whatever, and use it uh, to, to care for your own children or give it to your grandmother to care for your own children, or you can use the daycare system. Mm -hmm. I mean, but now they're pushing women like in Sweden. Um, all of these countries had an economic agenda. Mm -hmm. So we really have to be careful about what we believe today. I mean, I think that you don't just take things at surface value and say that um, others know best for you and your family. Um, you know what's best. If you feel a pull towards your child and you don't want to leave your child, then I'm going to say you do everything in your power not to, even if it means making compromises financially in those years, mm -hmm. even if it means selling a car, moving into a cheaper home, moving in with your parents while you're raising children, mm -hmm. uh, not taking vacations, you know, not going out to eat as much. Not, you know, you think about the sacrifices you must make mm -hmm. uh, when you're raising young children. Yeah. But I guarantee you those sacrifices will pay in spades. They will be the best investment you have ever, ever made in your life. So I have a question from, from a listener, a young mom uh, with two children, and she asked what she can do because she feels such guilt for having worked when the first child was uh, was little, now the child's in school. Uh, but that guilt, you know, she wants to make up for that damage she did to that attachment, which is a now which is now apparent to her do you have any advice? Well, I, I hate to give clinical advice over a podcast or any other remote way. I would say go and see somebody um, clinically and talk about it. But my, my immediate reaction is you can repair quite a bit of the damage done. Uh, but it means you have to change your behavior with that child. It means you can't keep going on the same And if she's asking, then she's saying, what can I do? And so she is willing to take, to make behavioral changes. And what it means is having a different attitude about that child. So when we leave our children very young, when we go into that schizoid state as mothers, we are projecting onto those children that they are more capable, more independent, more resilient than they actually are. So I don't know how old her child is. I don't have enough detail. No, of course But not. Of course not. You go back. You go back, and you you drop. You make sure to drop your child off at school in the morning. You be there for the transitions. You make sure to pick your child up at school after they're finished. You spend the afternoon with your child, uh, making them cookies, going to the park, uh, being with them. You put them to sleep at night. You make sure that you're there when they need you when they're in distress. Right. So after and you don't impose on them. So yeah. after three, you, you can you can repair attachment. You you can you repair. Put... So my second book, yeah, my second book is about the second critical window of development, which is nine to twenty-five. But you don't have to wait till nine to repair. Okay. You can try to repair it at any point in that journey. Um, and I think, yes, it, it may not be perfect. Mm -hmm. You may not be able to repair everything. But even talking to your child about how sad you are that you weren't there when when he was really little and you want to be there now and you understand that that you weren't always there when he needed you mm -hmm. and you're so sad about that and you feel sad for him and you're sad too. Those little things that you can do to take responsibility for your role and try to change that dynamic with your child. Mm -hmm. So really just being there being for them. There. Yeah. 
and uh, physically and emotionally. Yeah, right. there's no, there is no replacement for it, and there's no magic pill for it. It really is being. How can you notice in a school-aged child uh, if their if their attachment is disturbed? Well, if you ask a teacher to 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 tell you which children in the classroom have been in daycare, they can tell you every oh, time. Oh, really? You know, embarrassing. You ask teachers, they'll tell you. They either show early signs of aggression towards other children. They show signs of distractibility. They show signs of having behavioral issues of some kind. Mm -hmm. um, and so all of these things, uh, so the distractibility is the flight part of fight or flight. The aggression is the fight part of fight or flight. Mm -hmm. Right? So we basically what you're seeing in classrooms is the fight or flight response. Right. And some of these kids, they really cannot sit still. I've seen videos of them, they, these that's, ADHD but that's, kids. That's flight. Mm -hmm. That's flight. That is flight. That's what ADHD is nothing more than the flight part of a stress reaction. Mm -hmm. and it's the flight part. It's not a disorder. It's that they've been exposed. Either you've exposed them to or they've been exposed to too much mm -hmm. stress too early for their brains to be capable of, of, of coping with it. Are there others who are also uh, this vocal about ADHD not being a disorder? Because it's a very taboo that just, I could speak I just, to. Absolutely. I just wrote a, a chapter for a book on ADHD which talks about it not being a disorder. Uh, so, yes, there's a lot. If you look, there's a lot of pushback. There's even a a push to take the disorder out of ADHD. Oh, really? So it, the D is disorder. Yeah, yeah. So there's mm -hmm. a push to take that D off because it's not a disorder. It is not a brain disorder that you're born mm -hmm. with. It is not uh, It is not something that is irreparable and is only treatable with medication. But it means that this is a child who has been exposed to too much stress, who's never developed proper stress responses. Um, and again, without going into more detail, Some of it is repairable. Some of it is repairable. Maybe not all of it, but some of it is repairable. And with some young people, all of it can be repairable if you catch it early enough. Yeah. Right? Do not, do not medicate away the symptoms. The way I'll describe this to you is unless a child is severely, severely distractible, meaning they wander in the classroom, where you're going to medicate them while they're in therapy and then use the medication as a bridge to get them off of the medication. Medication just silences pain. It doesn't heal or cure that brain. So, you know, the issue is that it's like taking aspirin for the headaches from a brain tumor. If I were to say to you here, let me just keep giving you Advil or ibuprofen. I don't know what they call it in Switzerland. Yeah. Um, you know, if I, yeah, if I said, you know, take uh, paracetamol for for a headache related to a brain tumor. Uh, do you think that's a very wise way of going about it? No, you would say, I got to get to a doctor. I got to deal with the brain tumor under underlying the headaches, not just silence. You know, So I may take some medication to help me with the headaches while I'm getting help mm -hmm. with the real cause of the headaches. But you don't just medicate away symptoms. Mm -hmm. The problem is that society is still so very fixed on symptom relief. And mm -hmm quick fixes mm -hmm. to symptom symptoms rather than really dealing with causes yeah. and uh it's 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 sort of fighting the tide of a societal movement against dealing with origins mm. 
Yeah, they're really pushing this, uh, that it's uh, genetic. And I had uh, adults yeah. come into my office with pre-filled filled out forms from the internet and said, you know, my, my son just got diagnosed with ADHD, so I must have it too. And sort of put them on my desk, oh, these questionnaires. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, what am I supposed right. to do with this? So, yeah. So, so, you know, I would say <laughs> when you hear that the entire world, that 50% of the population has a disorder, I think we now know that maybe it's not a disorder, maybe that we're labeling something a disorder that is a normal reaction mm -hmm. to to stress. And so, um, yeah, so it's. I think we're at a point, we're getting to a critical point where it's almost ridiculous to call it a disorder. That would mean that every child has the disorder. And that's just, you know, it's, we know that that's, that's not, not possible. possible. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. This episode is also sponsored by Violet Nails, where I've been going to for years. It has a bunch of things from eyebrows and massages, mani-pedis, and it's all, the result is always so smooth and elegant. And the, the best thing, I think, is that the treatment never lasts longer than planned, which is important when you have places to go and kids and all of that. You can sit in a massage chair while you get your treatment and listen to music. It's a really good time out. So go to the link below and check it out. Okay. I mean, thank you so much. What's what's next for you? Where can we find you? So you can find me. My website is www.comisar.com. It has all of my articles and links to my books that you can buy and um, all everything that I write about and talk about is is as well as a link to how you connect with me if you want to be treated by me. So that's the best way to reach me. And I'm working on a third book now about divorce and children going through divorce. So that's my next book. Uh, but it won't be out for quite some time. Okay. So this has been really great. Uh, and I hope I hope listeners order your book. Really recommend it. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for listening to Psychobabble. Please share it with a friend, like and subscribe. It's really important.